0: things strength and wellness podcast i'm your host as always robbie burke and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today this episode's guest is my good friend brett Contreras. brett is a strength and conditioning coach sports scientist and researcher located in scottsdale arizona in the usa brett was previously on the podcast way back on episode 30 On this episode, Brett and I discussed Brett's recently completed PhD research, Brett's 2x4 Maximum Strength eBook, and what's next for Dr. Brett Contreras. I know he won't like me calling him doctor, but I did anyway. This is a great episode, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Mr. Brett Contreras, or should I say Dr. Brett Contreras, it's an absolute pleasure to have you uh, come back onto my podcast I'm sure that everyone who's listened to this knows who you are and, and if they want to know more about your background they can surely check out our previous podcast and also go to your website which we'll plug at the end but uh, just tell us what's uh, what's been new, what, what's what's what been going down in, in the world of Brecon Travers
1: Well I, as you mentioned I finished up my PhD which is nice so it's good to have that out of the way and learned a lot along the way and then now I'm just getting back to my training and uh actually taking on more personal training clients and um launched a, a training website strong by brett that's not a, not easy creating a website and everything like that is always takes takes twice as long and costs twice as much as you think but that's all good so yeah i'm feeling really good about things
0: but but brett you don't train people you're just an internet trainer don't th- <laughs> that's brett,
1: a- crazy robbie uh I've always heard... That, even when I was in New Zealand, I had personal training clients, but I always read that about me, and I'm like...
0: Yeah, did, 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 sorry, I, the only reason I say that is everybody says that, like, about certain people, and your name also... And I'm always like, Brett trains people. Have you not seen his fucking videos in his garage where he puts up these picture videos where he clearly trains clients?
1: Yeah, it's funny, because think about from the day I started, I'd always post videos of my clients, and I always showcase my clients, and there are people in the industry... Who have been around longer than me? I've never seen one video of them training anyone ever. Yeah. Not on Instagram. Not on YouTube. Not on any. And I'm not saying they don't really train people. I'm just saying if you train people, why aren't you? Like, what? What is it about my relationship with my clients where they they love they love it when I, you know, if I say to them, "Hey, uh, you mind if I put that? You want me to put that video on?" YouTube, or are you on? Are you not cool with that? And they're like, "Oh yeah, please do." You know, they yeah, they love it. So
2: yeah,
1: yeah. I've always going back, you know, from the days of Katie Coles and Carly and all these clients that I used to feature, um, all the way to now on my Instagram channel. You know, I, I'm probably training about 15 people in person right now. Yeah. But you no, know, it's nice. I I've been doing seminars uh, for the last three months and so I'll take 16 people, but just once a month, I work, you know, it's an, it's like a nine-hour seminar, and I work with people the whole day with their form, and I feel like it's taking, it's like, you know, the first personal training session is the hardest, you're learning about their bodies, and you're trying to get yeah. them to squat well, and deadlift well, and hip thrust well, and do all these exercises well, so I'll take 16 people, and teach them the whole day so I feel like it's almost like having 16 new clients for one session you know it's a, a lot of learning going on so I, I'm really happy with things right now because I feel like I'm my learning is maximized with my current disposition because when I was just a personal trainer I didn't learn the science I was weak in my scientific knowledge mm. but I had tons of personal training experience mm. And then I kind of, during my PhD, had to shift m- more towards the science end of things and less, will take on less clients. But then now, I have relationships with top researchers, and so not only do I conduct research myself, but I collaborate with these top-level people. So, I lo- so the science is, and I also have my research review service that I do with Chris Beardsley, so I'm sifting through 80 journals every month. Mm. So my... The science end of things is great, and then the personal training end of things is great, and especially with those seminars. Like I said, because I just I, I feel like this is so second nature to me now, working with people's form and getting. I had all 16 uh, attendees to my seminar last week. I felt like their deadlift form was like uh, either a nine or a ten out of ten. By you know, in one session. Uh, of course they weren't going heavy they were using like 135 pounds but still mm. I was really proud of it so yeah I'm in a good place
0: it's uh, yeah no I, I saw that actually on your Facebook feed that you were putting on these seminars in your in your gym at, at, like every it was once a month you're saying and I was like this is pretty cool like what what a great like little service to give to people it was awesome and also I would absolutely agree I, I recently took up a teaching position in a personal training college so every month I have a new new group new class essentially so like I have anywhere from like 7 to 15 students a month and uh, I have to say like between coaching and now teaching it really just helps you to like master your craft even more you know because you're getting you're getting kind of both this classroom aspect as well as the real world coaching aspect and very similar to yourself Brad like I recently realized over the last 18 months or two years that my science is really weak and I've actually gone back to reading hardcore science textbooks like biology and exercise physiology and even now just learning basic biomechanics and I'm just like man like I know none of this like basic fundamental science that I really should know if I want to be a you know if I really want to master my craft of being a coach. So I can really appreciate where you're at as well.
1: Well, you know, having been a former teacher, I used to teach high school math for six years, and I have my my master's degree is actually in curriculum and instruction, Mm. which I think helps me with my blogging because I come at my blogging from a teaching perspective. Definitely. But when you teach something, you retain it a lot better. You. You know, if you just memorize something for a test, you'll you you don't you you might discard that information quickly. When you teach it, you're going to retain it for a long time. So it's a higher level of learning.
0: Yeah, definitely. And also,
1: you're probably going to prepare better because you know you you don't want to look stupid in front of these students. So Mm. I totally agree with you. Teaching is uh, such an important part of mastering your craft, and and also what you mentioned, the biomechanics. It's funny. I don't know if you saw this, but. I spent 40 minutes. I came up with this idea on Friday because I just got two new clients, Brett and Marin, and they're the same height but Marin is all torso and and Brett is all legs. Mm. And their form is so different and I was like, you know, god, I don't even have to teach Marin anything. Her form is just perfect. She's so upright with her squats and it just comes natural for her and then Brett wants to fold like an accordion and so I thought I'm gonna take a picture of them side by side to show how much higher Brett's hips are, and then show their squat form. Blog post took me 40 minutes to write, and it's my most popular blog post I've ever written. It got, it got, it got so many shares. Like on my Facebook fitness page, it got over 700 shares in 24 hours, and almost 2,000 likes. But um, then, like I saw, like Lay Norton shared it. And then his got a hundred, over a hundred shares just from him sharing it. This thing got seventy-eight thousand on my Google Analytics. It got seven, no, sorry, seventy-four thousand views, which is my previous most popular blog was this blog post I wrote a couple of years ago called Five Things You Should Do Every Day," and that had like forty-five thousand or something wow. like that. So it blew everything out of the water. But I think the reason why it was so well received is because I think. There's a lot of long-legged or long femured lifters out there that are so tired of, you know, you look at social media, every time you do a squat, people are like, you need to be more upright. And people are tired of hearing that, that they need to be more upright. A, you know, a, a, a lean is okay if it's, if you, 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 there's no way around it if you have really, you know relatively long femurs. Yeah, you have to yeah. lean. So well, it, it was just an interesting blog post, an interesting experience for me because I was like, wow, that, I did not see that comment. I did not know it was
0: going to go viral like that. I could definitely sympathize with with that with that gentleman, Brett, because I uh, I'm I'm all femur as well. Like I'm a long-legged man, so when I squat, like like my high bar squat is just is just a disaster. Whereas I like my low bar squat is much better because obviously the position of the bar it just stays over my center of gravity better. But I've got long legs, so I can definitely sympathize with long leg people in squatting. Well, I, I
1: will tell you, it's my
0: yeah. You're a tall guy too, sure.
1: Right, I'm 6'4", so, uh, you know, squatting to me is never... I mean, I can demonstrate, uh, you know, an awesome squat form, mm. but that doesn't mean that's how it's going to look when I go heavy.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And it's not just my femur length. It's also my... I've never... It's funny because t- all the powerlifters at my gym are like, you know, if I tell them, I, they're like, you need more quads. And I'm like, no kidding. I, I, there's nothing that I can do. It's like genetic, my genetically weak muscle group that everyone's got, like me. I've got veins coming out of my calves. I never do calf raises, and they get more muscular over the years too. I'll, I'll tell you something interesting about that, and then I don't want to go off on too big of a tangent, but
0: well, tangent, tangent, you're all right.
1: I just have to work my way back though. When I, go
2: <laughs>
1: Cal, uh, I wrote up this Inside the Muscle series for T Nation. God, like probably five five years ago or so, where I did EMG experiments on myself, and you know qu- squats work my calves really hard. Uh, uh, I don't do calf raises. I just, but I have really muscular calves because of squatting, and squats get my peak EMG activation in my calves up higher than calf raises do. Awesome. So I just thought it was like that for everyone, but I checked the research, and most people. They're not getting high calf activation when they squat. Like the mean activity is like twenty in percent in most people. So something about my stature that makes me use my calves a ton in my squat. But anyway, um, back to what I was saying earlier, Thinking of earlier, the reason why I've learned so much about the squat, why I've become, you know, uh, a, an expert on squatting biomechanics, is because I, tr- I wanted to understand why it's so freaking hard for me. For example, the first, I think, th- three months into learning the deadlift, I was hitting four hundred five for six reps, and you know, I st- I, ca- I still can't squat four hundred five for six reps. I've never again. my best squat is four twenty five. My best deadlift is six hundred five. I mean, I'm just so much better of a deadlifter but yeah. yeah, it's these long femurs. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm
0: the same too, like my, my best deadlift is, is uh 205 at 80 kilo, and my best squat is uh 170 at 80 kilo, so yep. it's it's way off, you know? and my, my bench is terrible because I've got long fecking arms and skinny chest too, so I'm more of, it, yeah, deadlift is definitely my better, again, just cause, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you've seen that article too by um, <clears throat> Greg Knuckles, it's, it's probably, a, it's probably not quite a year, but a few months back, and, he was speaking about, like, <clears throat> the kind of limiting factors of strength, and one of the things he spoke about was, like, where people's certain attachments are in, in accordance to, like, where their muscles attach into their bones, and he was kind of making the point that where these attachments happen can can predispose you to be better at, like, pushing, like, as in a squat or pulling as in a deadlift, and he's like, this is why some people are better at certain lifts than others, that's another aspect, as well as their actual bony structure.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me, and here's what's so fascinating about biomechanics, longer months. You can have a you, you can require a totally different body type. For example, with me, I've never squatted a lot, but I can push forward real hard. And I measured this on a force plate. I actually came up with a new test with my force plate for my PhD, where you stand on the force plate and you push into a wall, at a 40, your your torso's at a 45 degree angle, and I could produce more horizontal force pushing into a wall than my two interns at the time, Andrew and Joey. And they could both squat like five hundred twenty-five pounds. They could squat a hundred more pounds than me, but I could push into the wall, and they could. So you know, I don't have good leverages for squats, but I do. that doesn't hinder me for just pushing into a wall, and that uh, applies to sports because in sports, that's a important quality: pushing people forward.
0: Yeah, I I remember reading that. Um, I'm trying to look. I'm actually on my iPad here trying to. Th- get the book up it was in one of the my exercise physics books i was looking at just that point you made and they were saying that certain muscle fiber types i think it's also in franz bosch's latest book too that like in another way different fiber arrangements so they like there's uni and pennet and fusiform muscles but they're i can't remember exactly but they're saying that one type is more for force generation and one is more so for velocity generation so i i, I i've also read certain stuff on that as well like the way that the muscle fiber and tendon is is arranged and attached into the bone it's designed more so for force and and another arrangement is designed more so for velocity so I, I remember reading i think this is fascinating i know i know that franz bosch speaks about like the biarticular the bioticular nature of rectus femoris the hamstring group and and then the 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 gastrocnemius is more designed for that like elastic store of energy in running whereas your glute your glute because it has a shorter lever arm on the femur is more about like that force generation or i, I think that's right you know you'd know a lot more about that than i would but uh, i've heard of this concept that cer- certain par- certain muscle fiber arrangements and their attachments are more designed for force others are designed more for that kind of velocity and elastic energy transfer well
1: sure the fiber type proportions but it's also like um like, uh, God, there's an awesome study published last year, I believe, or might have been the year before, but it showed that, so when you're running and you go from like, I don't know, zero to like, I think it was seven meters per second, what makes you faster is the calves, the gas, the soleus complex. hmm wow. The gastrocnemius and the soleus just—it's not like the hips go working much harder. It's that the calves work harder to to so you 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 go higher and you travel further. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the hip necessarily providing more, much more input. But after that, eventually the calves top out and they can't contract any. They can't so gr- ground contact c- gets lower and lower because you're speeding up Yeah. so the calves, it reaches a point where the calves, the gastrosoleus complex, no longer contract fast enough so uh, at that point in time above, I think it was 7 meters per second, it could be butchering up but at, at that point, subsequent increases in speed are solely from the hips so the hip flexors and then the hip extensors um, and what's interesting about the hamstrings people I've heard Some people in the sprint community, they just they don't understand sprinting, you know. They don't understand biomechanics. They don't study biomechanics. For example, I heard Vern Gambetta say, like, don't ever do leg curls or glute ham raises because that's not how it it works in sprinting. When you go into knee flexion, it's passive. It's the hip flexors bringing the leg up. So you don't ever need, you know. So he's looking at the motion. When your leg flexes, when your knee flexes during sprinting, it's the hip flexors bringing the leg up and it happens passively. That's true. But what, what I don't think he does understand is that when your foot touches the ground in order to, you know, in order to propel the body forward, you have to provide, you know, first you have braking forces and then you have to provide produce propulsive forces but the hamstring has to work as a hip as a hip extensor but it also has to work as a knee flexor because the knee the knee flexion moment is actually the two things as you speed up the two joint moments that increase the most are hip extension and knee flexion moments meaning those the torque around those joints increase the most as you speed up and the knee flexion component think about it if you if your foot touched down on the ground and your and your knee just buckled and move forward, you wouldn't produce any force. The so knee has to stay stiff as you're pulling your center mass over the body. And so, anyway, for this reason, hamstrings are so important in sprinting.
0: Mm. So, Brett, w- one of the reasons why uh, I wanted to get you on was to go through your, your PhD that you done in um, in AUT down in New Zealand. So, m- maybe just give a bit of a history background. like. You know, like h- how did this PhD come about? Like, why did you go to New Zealand? I believe then you you came back and then finished it while you were in America, and then um, maybe just speak about your actual thesis, like what what the thesis was, what what was it looking at, and, and like how you came up with this topic for your thesis. So, okay,
1: so uh, this is a kind of funny story because I uh, uh, my buddy Matt Brugelli, him and my supervisor John Cronin, they published a study. I think it was two thousand eleven maybe it was 2009, I think it was 2011, or maybe 2010, and it was the effects of velocity on running kinematics and kinetics, or something like that. That was, the title of the study was something like that, and basically it was showing that as you speed up, and this kind of jives with what I just said earlier about the caps, as you speed up, Once you get to around 60 to 70% of maximum speed, your vertical force tops out. So, as you speed up, vertical force goes up, goes up, goes up, and then at about 67% of max speed, there's no more increases in vertical force, but there are increases in horizontal force linearly as you speed up. So, if you go from, you know, 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 to 70 to 80 to 90 to max speed, there's increases in horizontal force all along the way or net horizontal force i should say so um so that study came out and that was back when i was arguing with all the sprint the track and field experts who thought i was an idiot because i was saying it's all about horizontal force but we didn't have any enough good research and so i would get these bloggers who would bash me in the sprint community cuz they were they only kind of knew of peter wiens research and ralph mann's research but I was like, I didn't even know the research. I was just thinking of it from a scientific, from a logical, scientific perspective. And you don't, okay, if I want to go faster that way, you push, into you know, the ground the opposite way. That's like Newton's laws. You don't, if I want to go faster forward, you don't push harder downward. That will make you go up. You know, like, it just didn't make sense to me. And it bothered the hell out of me because I was getting bashed by these guys. And I'm going... How what they're saying doesn't even make sense. They're saying that, you know, as you keep speeding up, the secret is vertical force, because you got to get on and off the ground fast, and you can't produce any increasing net horizontal force. Well, that's true, but it's not... Well, that would take me a long time to explain, so they're missing the fact that like, Hussein like, Bolt is faster than everyone, not because he has these crazy superior vertical force capabilities, it's because he has horizontal superior capabilities at high velocities. If their people can't produce increasing horizontal force at these rapid velocities, he still can, so his hip and knee extensors can fire. Uh, I'm I'm speculating here, but anyway, uh, when they published this study, I was just a blogger, so I wrote them and said, I wasn't even professional, I think I dropped some F-bombs even, I was like, you know, this is fucking awesome. I've been waiting for this research to come out. I've been saying this for the last couple of years and taking a lot of heat for it, and it's good to have some evidence behind it. And so I started talking to Matt about his study, and then John, I was emailing, I emailed both of them, and they both replied to me separately. So I'm talking to John, and I'm talking to Matt, and I told Matt I would love to get my PhD, but... It's just so daunting. I have to get my master's degree in sport, in you know exercise science, and then get get a PhD. And he's like, "Talk to John. He might be able to, you know, accept you as a student." So then I had to go back, you I was so unprofessional. I had to go back and say, "Hey, John, I, I'm interested in getting my PhD." And and it's kind of funny because he's from New Zealand. He's like, "Yeah, let's have a natter on Skype." and I'm like, "What is a natter? A, a conversation, I guess." And uh, another funny story. I go to I got to get on Skype to 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 have our first matter. and he's like, Hey Brett, I, I I found a Brett Contreras on Skype. Are you Devil Angel six six six? And I'm like, What what the heck? <laughs> what would that mean? I'm satanic? There's some other Brett Contreras that goes by Devil Angel Six 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 and I'm like, No, John, that's not my I'm like, Great, I'm never getting in. I'm never gonna be accepted to AUT now. But I cleared that up quickly. We had a talk. We got along great which is so important to have it be a good fit, because you're going to be working with this person for a long time, but it just so worked out so well, because we're both so interested in the same exact things. So he, you know, is the a perfect match, and that's so important for these, I tell these to prospective PhD students, I'm like, make sure, you know, find the researcher that does the stuff that interests you most, and vice versa, PhD, you know, PhD research professors should Find students who are so interested in the same research because then it just it works out so well because you're both so passionate about the same thing. So I go to so I go to you know AUT and I can essentially pick whatever research I want. John will support it because he's into the same thing. So I wanted to know the differences between squats and hip thrusts. That used to keep me up at night because I'd be going, why do they? They're both hip extension. What's different about them? You know. And then, over the years, I learned more about biomechanics. There's a lot of differences. Their, their hip extension torque angle curves are different. They're, and then, we did a bunch of studies, and we learned all kinds of crazy different things about them. So, I'll try to rapidly summarize what I learned in my PhD thesis. So, we did a bunch of EMG studies, and we found that hip thrusts are far superior. So, real quick, I'll, I'll preface this. I'm going to tell you the EMG studies, and you'll think that hip thrusts are superior. Then I'll tell you the force plate study that I did, and you'll think that squats are superior. Mm. And then I'll tell you about the training studies, and you'll realize that they're both important. You need to do both of them. So, uh, so okay, EMG studies, we, we looked at uh, vastus lateralis, biceps femoris, and then upper and lower gluteus maximus, and hip thrusts far out. Far out activate squats in, in gluteus maximus and biceps femoris. So, glutes and hamstrings are way higher in hip thrust than squats. Um, and the vastus lateralis was pretty similar. We also did a bunch of other studies on different hip thrust and squat variations. But, um, for example, if you use the same relative loading, you don't get greater glute activation when going deeper than parallel. So, like Everyone can squat, most people can squat a little bit more going to parallel than rock bottom. So you use a little bit heavier weight going to parallel. And so that um, went against the findings of Catarzano 2001 paper that everyone references when they say go deep for squats. Well, I kind of disproved that, or not disproved it, but I showed evidence contradicting that because, like, I think. My girls were using, say, like, say, say their 1RM back squat was, I don't know, say, 150 pounds going to parallel, but it was only 100 and, you know, 20 pounds going rock bottom. The EMG ended up being the exact same. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, that was kind of interesting. So EMG, the advantage would go to the hip thrusts. Then we did a force plate study, and. This I thought was a no-brainer, because I was like, okay, force equals mass times acceleration. Hip thrusts have the advantage for mass and acceleration, because you can go heavier and you can accelerate it faster, because you don't have this crazy sticking region like you do with squats. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, this is just uh, uh, a formality here. I'm going to go through the motions and get this force plate data, but this just shows how (laughs) you have an open mind. Everything on the squat came back superior than to hip thrust and I'm like, what? How's that? I'm like, the, the, the force plate was wrong. It was compromised. We screwed up on data collection. And as I started analyzing it more and thinking about it, hip thrusts are a mostly concentric exercise. People explode up, and then you let gravity, you don't like control it slowly, eccentrically. You just kind of let your hip drop and the weight comes smashing down to the floor so uh so yeah we could say lower it slowly and artificially make them have high eccentric forces but that's not how people do it in real life so that's what i want to do for this study how do people really squat and hip thrust in real life so we did parallel squats versus hip thrust and what we found was squats have 0.7 meters range of motion hip thrust have 0.4 so, squats have a lot more length of motion, barbell ring, displacement. Um, hip thrusts performed a lot faster. Uh, this, I can't remember the s- speeds, but uh, hip thrusts are performed faster. Um, squats have, so, hip thrusts have higher concentric forces, but squats have so much higher eccentric forces. So, when you squat, when you, when you squat a weight up and down, you pretty much use the same like it's only a 10 percent difference in forces on the way down compared to way up. Concentric forces are about 10 percent higher than eccentric forces. Think about it when you squat you're really controlling it on the way down especially as you reverse it. It's really hard but with the hip thrust is almost three times higher in the concentric phase compared to the eccentric phase so yeah if you looked at this study so anyway then we analyzed impulse and power and work and all these things and basically concentric power like in a hip thrust you have higher concentric forces and power but eccentric is so much lower so when you do total the squat ends up looking a lot better so if you just looked at the force plate you'd be like squats are a fuller range of motion you know concentric and eccentric exercise whereas hip thrusts are a shorter range of motion mainly concentric exercise so the advantage would go to squat. But this is what I try to teach people in my seminars. Um, These are mechanistic studies. EMG and force plate are mechanisms. You can learn a lot but you can't really know. You can speculate, okay, because hip thrusts have higher EMG in the glutes and hamstrings they're going to lead to greater gluten hamstring hypertrophy or they're going to lead to greater sprinting speeds, or squat has higher forces, higher eccentric forces, so it's going to lead to higher, greater, you know, greater transfer to to functional, you know, functional uh, performance, but you're only speculating because you're not measuring those things. If you want to know what has more hypertrophy or what has more transfer to vertical jump or sprinting speed, you have to conduct a training study. You actually have to take people, test them, put them through, say, eight weeks of training, and then retest them. And then you're looking at what actually does happen instead of speculating about what you think happens. So that's the last thing we did for my thesis. We did two training studies. One was just a pair of twins, and one was a team of adolescent male rugby players. So I'll tell you about the twins first. The twins were a pair of identical female twins in their late 20s. And one did six weeks of hip thrust, one did six weeks of squats. They did a DUP, daily undulated periodization scheme, three times a week. And, God, they got so much stronger. Uh, the hip thrust twin um, got 61% stronger at her back hip thrust. So she, she started out... Uh, thrusting 200 pounds and finished off hip, hip thrusting 315 I think or something like that and uh, but here's what's interesting this the hip thrust twin never did a squat never even did a squat in her warm up and all the six weeks of hip thrusting when she went back to her squat her one rep max squat was 95 pounds she hit a 135 pound squat with better form having never done a single squat not even warm up so, I mean, obviously she stood up from a chair during those six weeks, but she never did an actual squatting motion, not once. So the hip thrust raised her squat big time. The squat, on the other hand, did not raise the hip thrust as much. But, uh, but anyway, we looked at several things. I'll tell you the, the outcomes of that twin case study. The squat twin obviously improved her squat to a greater degree than the hip thrust twin and then the hip thrust twin improved her hip thrust to a greater degree. But then we looked at gluteus maximus muscle thickness by ultrasound and the hip thrust twin saw greater gains in gluteus maximus thickness compared to the squat twin but it didn't quite reflect the EMG. With EMG you got like, like more than double the activation in the glutes and, and in the, in the uh, ultrasound measurements only showed 28% in increases in thickness in the hip thrust twin and 21% increases in the squat twin. So the hip thrust beat out the squats, but it wasn't as significant as I would have thought. And that's pretty substantial in 6 weeks, 28% increase in muscle thickness in the glutes. That's pretty cool. But they trained they trained so hard in the week for 6 weeks they were beat beat up. It was like if I would have done another week, they probably would have hurt themselves. Uh, they were ready to deload after that. But anyway, the the last thing we tested with that is that horizontal force plate test. I uh, or sorry, horizontal force test I told you about, where you stand on a force plate, and the hip thrust twin saw way better gains in pushing horizontally than the squat twin. So this infers that if, if you want, like say, you train Ironman or rugby players or football players and you want to increase their ability to push forward, you should do hip thrusts and you should prioritize hip thrusts over squats. Okay, now for the training study with the adolescent male rugby players. Um,
2: they did front squats because the coach was more, the coach felt that he was a lot
1: more comfortable using front squats instead of back squats. So we did six weeks of front squats versus hip thrusts. And the uh, we looked at a bunch of different things here. Um, we looked at a variety of measure- measurements. So uh, I'll just test, your, I'll test you out, Robbie, and see what you think. One group does squats, just squats for six weeks. One group does just hip thrusts. Which group do you think would see better increases in vertical jump, front squats or hip thrusts?
0: You would logically think the front squat because of the force factor.
1: Yep, and that's exactly what happened. Front, squ- front squats are way better for vertical jumping than hip thrust based on this study. Okay, which group do you think would be better for acceleration?
0: The hip thrust group, because of the horizontal force.
1: Yeah, and that was my theory, but I never had any evidence. And it, 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 I could convince people I make it sound like an interest, you know, an interesting theory. But the sprint guys were always skeptical. They're like, eh, you know. But now, now we have some evidence of that. So yeah hip thrusts were way better for, for 10 and 20 meter acceleration. And by the way, sports are about acceleration, not maximum speed. You know, most of ground sports, it's all about acceleration. So, um, what would you think for horizontal jump?
0: As in a broad jump?
1: Yeah, broad jump.
0: Again, I, I would, uh, my first reaction would be the hip thrust again because of the horizontal force.
1: Yep, you're three for three. So, horizontal... Uh, so sorry hip thrust was better but it wasn't significantly better but it was it did edge out the the front squat um obviously for front squat strength front squats were superior for hip thrust strength hip thrusts were superior here's a cool thing that showed the transfer though if you did front squats and never did hip thrust you gained about half as much strength on the hip thrust as the hip thrust group without ever hip thrusting and vice versa if you did just hip thrust and didn't do any front squats. you gained about half as much strength on the front squat as the front squat group without ever front squatting. Yeah. So that shows that they do transfer to one another. So if you have an injury, you know, say your knees are hurting and you, can, you can't front squat, but you can hip thrust, or your back is hurting or something, it shows that you should be doing these other exercises to help. Well, that I can't I can't totally claim that, but it, you know, you can surmise that based on those findings that these can help you retain your strength on the other lifts, and then here's the last thing that was interesting to me. What would you think would lead to better transfer to isometric mid thigh pull? So, like standing on a on a force plate, bar is at mid thigh position, and you pull up as hard as you can, kind almost like a deadlift lockout, but your knees are underneath the bar a little bit more.
0: You, I think initially you because you're probably standing vertically, you might say a front squat because again at the top of the deadlift, it's kind of almost just you're locking out your 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 knees. And, um, but then if you suppose we thought about it too, uh hip thrust is is unique in that you're get you're still getting a, a kind of a lot of load at that lockout position of your hips. So I'd say that probably both contribute to a degree, but to to speculate which one would help more, I'd actually probably say the hip thrust.
1: Well, Robbie, you're intuition was great you nailed every one of these uh of the outcomes so yeah the hip thrust greatly outperformed I and mean, we didn't see that coming we thought it would either be a wash or maybe the squat because it's vertical but the hip thrust i mean it's so far i can't remember the percent improvements it was something crazy though hip thrust was so far superior to it and that's what i think it means you know i would tell all these powerlifters that I train with Whenever they stall at lockout, I can start doing hip thrusts and back extensions, and you'll build end-range hip extension strength, and you'll be able to lock that out. And most of them come back to me and say, "Hey, I took I took your advice, and I, my lockouts have never felt better." So, uh, so that, so anyway, those were my PhD findings. Um, I think it's an awesome. I'm really proud of it, but. just as a researcher it's so daunting because you're like okay I did that twin case study that's just a case it's cool that it's twins because it removes the confounder of genetics you know but it's still just a case study now I need to do that with a a big group of people and then the, the other training study it's like okay I did that on adolescent males let's does that apply to females? Does that apply to older males? You know, it's like you got to keep doing more and more research. You can never get complacent. you got to keep going. So if we just scratch the surface now, and what about the deadlift? We compare the squat and the hip thrust. What about the deadlift? So right now I'm saving up money. Uh, what's nice about working so hard is I don't spend my money. I just sit and work all day long. I still drive a $4,000 truck with like 160,000 miles on it. So um, I'm saving up money to fund, uh, studies from like top top quality research labs that can that can conduct some of these studies. Just because I'm so curious, I want to know the answer. I'm willing to spend a ton of my own money just to learn the answer because I
2: want to know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just before we we move off the your your PhD too, in terms of like the the total training volumes to the squad and the hip thrusts. How did you manage to dictate that? Because obviously the squat has a larger range of motion than the hip thrust. Did you have to manipulate the sort of sets and reps to kind of equal out the total training volume for both? Okay, that's it. So we use the same volume, like same sets and
1: reps, but here's what's interesting about that question. It kind of equals itself out because the squat is a larger range of motion and it so it takes more time. So you have more so so you do a set of 10 reps on a squat versus a set of 10 reps on a hip thrust, you're going to finish the hip thrust quicker than the squat. Mm. But, um, unless you use a metronome, which they do in the research a lot, but we didn't do that in my study, because I wanted to know how it's, how it's typically done, not, not controlling any of these variables. But they, So the time under tension is higher for the squat, but people are stronger in the hip thrust, so they have more volume load. So I've never seen this done before, but I multiplied volume load times time under tension. So because you have the advantage in time under tension goes to the squat, but the advantage in volume load goes to the hip thrust. So when you multiply those two together, they were almost spread even. So, and I, I don't know what you'd even call that, volume load times time under tension. It's kind of almost like impulse when on a graph where you measure the area under the curve. It's kind of similar to that but I think it's a, a useful measurement if in in sports science but I don't I don't think it's called I don't think it's used but yeah so no I didn't make any adjustments
0: um so you, you kind of touched on this just briefly there in you saying you're saving money for more research so so my next question is where to now what's next for Breck and and dr. Brett Contreras?
1: a good question so uh, first of all i finally feel like i can um after my phd i had blogged you know you know robbie i blogged like three times a week for like six years or something you know like i was a very prolific blogger and after i finished my phd i was just like oh my god i don't want to write ever again you know i'm like (laughs) done with and now i'm getting that back i'm starting it's been you know like uh it's been eight months now and so I'm finally getting the getting back to wanting to write and wanting to blog again. Yeah.
0: Well the the, the the law of accommodation isn't just limited to training. You know, you, you accommodate to everything life: people, nutrition, so right it's just the same with you writing, you need to deload from writing to get the <laughs> exactly. the, se- the sensitivity back. Exactly. So um, so yeah, I just wanna be
1: blogging and then um, you know, whatever, I'm excited now that I have some systems in place, so I'm happy with, you know, how much I'm working and how much money I'm making, and that's all good. So kind of now it's just, for me, I'm i not like, a, I need to make more money, I need to make more, I need to make a million dollars a year. I don't care so much about that, because I will tell you, last year I made a lot more money, and was miserable money does not lead to happiness you know happiness is has a lot to do with doing the things you like and not stressing yourself out Mm. and the goal in life is to be happy not to just make as much money as possible I mean I learned that big time last year because I was working so hard because during my PhD I was still blogging and social media crazy and I didn't feel good if, if I didn't post on Facebook, Twitter and a couple times on Instagram, every single day, I didn't feel, I felt like I was slacking. And I was doing my PhD and lifting weights and training other people. And it was just brutal. So now I just quit thinking that way. And it's like, you don't have to Facebook every day. You don't have to blog, blog every week. You don't have to Twitter every day. You know, Instagram's easy because it's not hard to upload a picture. But <laughs> I quit Putting that kind of stress on myself, and now instead of being like, like I, I could take on online one-on-one online clients and make a lot of money, doing distance coaching. But God, to do distance distance coaching right, I have to give up my phone numbers. Text me
2: videos of all your lifts. And I do that with a, my client, Tana Eubanks
1: right now, and it's it's a pain in the butt. She's she's an uh. uh you know, like a high-level bikini competitor. Mm. She's seen great results, but it's a lot of work. I don't want to wake up to a few million emails and text messages, so I don't do that. Yeah, I don't, I don't do online training. So to me, it's about be, being happy. So what will make me happy? Not being so stressed out, not working so much, having time to smell the roses, but also doing what I enjoy and learning. I have to be learning, so I want to be involved in the research. And, you know, I like my my, I call them the glute squad, my, my clients that I have, I've got nine people that come on Mondays, and Fridays, so I train nine people at once, and then I have a group that comes on Tuesdays, and then I have a couple of random clients, but it's a good, it's, I like the nine people, they're all people I care about and like, I don't have any, you know those, you know when you're a personal trainer and you're like, oh god, I gotta train the.
0: Ener, the energy, the energy vampires.
1: Yeah. I don't have any of those right now, so it's great, I'm just really, really, uh, for the first time in a while, I feel pretty good about things, so uh, I'm not going to put any pressure on myself in the future, but what's nice now is that if a book opportunity, because I've got a couple Human Kinetics and Victory Belt, both want me to write another book, but I'm like stalling, because I'm not, I'm like, uh, just don't want to take on another big writing assignment, but a possibility and then I, I don't know I, I, I'm speaking at more places now I've, I, I think I speak at like 11 different places this year um, so it's, it's a good balance right now that I have and I, I'm just content with things so I don't really what happens what, in the future I want to learn more about the past. I want to get more research done with that and I'd like to eventually put out a good product with all the exercises that I like doing and really teaching the biomechanics of them, you know, but that's not, I'm not putting any pressure on myself.
0: Yeah, yeah. but uh, a question I've always wanted to get your take on since I last interviewed you was uh, like a big push lately in the industry has has been to be more evidence based and to to be more critically minded and to 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 incorporate more critical thinking into the whole uh, fitness profession like for individuals like kind of like myself who don't have a scientific background but who would like to become more sort of scientifically minded and more evidence-based what would your advice be like you know like is there any resources like so there's a lot of people out there who just don't know how to read research like how can you actually read a paper and understand like what are p values what are standard deviations like where would be a good place for people to start to be able to like read scientific research and actually be able to understand it
1: well, that's a good question. Well, first of all, Robbie, I, I, I want to defend you first because you've done it in the right order. You know, I remember you on the strengthcoach.com forums, and I don't know if you're still active on there, but you learned, you know, if, if you're starting out, pick a good, say, say you want to be a power lifter or a personal trainer or a strength coach or a physical therapist, find some good professionals to learn from and just copy them, you know, because their system's probably going to be better than yours because you, you're, you're green. And then, you know, so you, you learned the practical side of things, uh, you know, through, through Mike Boyle's approach and Dan John's approach and all these people. And I, I, would rec- I would recommend you doing it that way, but the problem with that is humans ha- are, you know, erroneous. And I always say that at my seminars. Probably ten different things I tell you today will be wrong I'm too stupid to know it right now you know I'm, i it's just how it works. I can look back on things from five years ago and just cringe because i I thought I knew the answer but I didn't
0: but well, that's all that's all part of the process
1: it is part of the process and if you're not doing that if you're not cringing at what you were doing five years ago or what you wrote, then you know you're probably not doing it right but anyway uh you don't like I always tell help people who are too hard on themselves about the research. You know, what I remember it was Bob Alejo on the strength coach forums. Yeah. He was like, "I've never learned. I've never uttered or even paid my uh, any concern to rate of force development in my entire life," and he's a professional strength coach for I think the Oakland A's back then. So it's like you can be a good. You can be a great coach and not know the science that well. If you know how to coach the lifts and write a decent program and you're, like, motivating and a good, you know, people want to follow you because you're a good leader, that's, like, I don't know, that's a, a huge percentage of it.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: That's yeah. Like 80% of it. But I don't like the, the polarization. So you get these scientists that overvalue science and undervalue the practical side of things, and vice versa. You have these strength coaches that, you know, who cares this, you know, the science is, you know, you don't need the science, you just need to, have to get, get in your hours, in the trenches. And that's just silly, because obviously, to be your best, you'd want to do both. You want to, to improve in both arenas, And that's, that's, it's weird, that's a United States thing. When you meet the strength coaches around the world, and the the sports scientists around the world, they'll always say, you know, U.S., the United States, you guys rely on your population and your diversity for your athletic success. We don't have the population, so we have to have the science. Like New Zealand, they're, okay, they have a great rugby culture, but they're really big on the science, because they can't, they won't win the Rugby World Cup if they don't they aren't leading the way in science as well. So, like, their strength coach, Nick Gill, he has his Ph.D., but he's also a meathead like us, the lifter, and he's in there, and yeah. he g- lifts himself, and he's in the gym watching the athletes all day long. Then you that, you
0: has got it? Dan Baker as well, the Australian strength coach, his Ph.D. Yeah, Dan
1: Baker, exactly. And yeah. in, in, in Australia and New Zealand and England and these other countries, it's just second nature. You've got your strength coaches are also scientists, and they're involved in research. And so that's how it should be, in my opinion, but you know, the, US is, you know, the U.S. is always interesting, so, um, so that's a United States
2: mentality. But anyway, yeah, you want to do both, so to answer your question, how do you, what the hell do
1: you do? Because I was in this disposition, I, I remember I told you, I got my master's degree in curriculum and instruction and in education, so I don't know how to read these research studies, but I will tell you, it's just like anything else, you get better in putting in the time. It's funny, because I'm good, good, you know, my best buddies in the industry are like Brad Schoenfeld and Alan Aragon and all these guys, all these science whizzes, but I think the two smartest guys I know are Andrew Vygotsky and Chris Beardley. They're smarter than me, Brad, and Alan. We're just better showmen. We're better, uh, we have the sizzle. We have the sizzle, but they're they're so smart. They taught themselves statistics and they don't they don't even have PhDs. They don't even have masters degrees in sports science. They just have bachelor's degrees, I think. I think Chris, Chris might have a degree in some other field, but uh anyway, they're self-taught with sports science and they're at the top. They they're they're, the, they're like <laughs> and they taught themselves it, but here's the thing about them. They probably spend like 8 hours a day improving their you know, for scientific knowledge they're reading research they're summarizing research they're doing conducting the research they're analyzing it you know they will they're the types that'll get a study and they'll like look at the data and they'll they'll check over the stats like I would, I, don't, I, I don't do that like then they'll be like I don't know something's fishy about this study. like I just read it and take the stats for what it what you know, what it says I don't be I don't check up on them and so anyway, so the, the, my point of mentioning them is that they they put in the time and the effort. So when they don't know something, they'll Google it or YouTube it or try to say, you know, what is this? What is a Bonferroni correction? And they'll learn it. And it's crazy because if there's a will, there's a way. You know, Brad Schoenfeld and Alan and I, we were just guys who were interested in hypertrophy and fat loss, strength. And... So we kept studying, and you just keep getting better. So put in the time. When you start out, um, you know, you've got to learn how to use PubMed and all this stuff. you got to learn how to read a paper. But this comes in time, and it, you just get better and better at it over time. But I'm trying to think how you can take a shortcut. I know Alan Aragon has his research review. I have a research review. But those summarize the research. It's a good quality to have someone sit down with you and teach you I had a journal club I was going to really stuck. I've been so busy but I had one club meeting where I, t- I went through all of the study to show people the things to look at you know and, and even pay attention to the journals and the authors because I'm at a point where I know all the main authors in strength and conditioning and biomechanics and so I'm like oh this is this author's paper this is going to be a good one you know this. This person's high level. They're the best. You know in this field, this is a great paper. This is a good journal. You, 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 that takes time, though. It all takes time, and uh, I guess if you get a good professor. But I don't know if products that'll teach you how to be. Well, Mark Hunt came out with one years ago. I, don't I, was just,
0: even, I was just about to say that he actually came out with yeah, how to read research, is not it?
1: That was years ago. I don't even know if he still sells it, but. Um, I but actually,
0: the, I it, actually
1: have intuitive todo. <laughs> that's funny. So, so that, but it t- it just takes time because even now, and you don't don't beat yourself up because we're all works in progress. Like, I'm. I need. To, I have things as a researcher that I need to improve. I need to improve my statistics knowledge. I need to improve my methodology knowledge, but. You know, I'm not going to beat myself up over that because I'm young as a researcher. I'll get better. And, you know, one thing I do have is the practical side of things. You know, I can look at a study and go, because I've been a trainer for so long and a lifter for so long, I know what's important and what to pick out of that and how it's relevant. Other people don't necessarily have that skill. So being the best coach or trainer or lifter or athlete you can be is, there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of facets to it, so you know, being, being scientific is an important one but it just takes time, and you get, you, you get better in time through reading research, scrutinizing it, talking about it with colleagues, because that's why I like about these, when I go travel to Norway and UK and, and these places to present with my colleagues, like you mentioned, Greg Knuckles, Menno Henselman's Eric Helms Brad Allen you know all these guys that I present that with they they'll be dis- they'll be discussing a study and I've read that Research, I, 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 I love hypertrophy, but I don't memorize all the signaling research. Like, you know,
0: mTOR and <laughs> yeah, mTOR and MPKT and all oh, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Thank two more questions but uh, another thing I, I, that I've never really heard you speak about or publicised too often was your 2x4 book and may, maybe just briefly you know talk about how you, the 2x4 book came about because everyone kind of knows you for your glue book and, and the 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 Strong Curves book that also came out but the 2x4 kind of was this little gem that no one kind of picked up on and I, I read that and I really enjoyed it so maybe just give a brief sort of background into that book so 2
1: by 4 I wanted to make a maximum strength product, and, and I also wanted to test it out. So it's funny, you know, you see people in the industry put out a new product, and it's like, here's a maximum strength program, and you don't know, you know, how do you know it worked? Um, but I took like, I can't remember how long I took making this thing, like seriously, like a year. And I had my interns doing it with me, and I had also a couple clients do it. So... We would actually, when Joey and Andrew, Joey Percy and Andrew Serrano, were my interns, we would have meetings every week about the previous week's training and how we think it could be better. And you know that that you make you end up making a really good program when you have that kind of feedback and yeah. you know have people start thinking. Okay, Andrew would say, you know, I really liked it, but I think we went overboard on this. And Joey would say, I feel like I was missing out on a little bit of this, and I I tweak it. Then we we kept we kept doing the program, kept tweaking it, kept, and, and I actually, that, I used that program to do my, to hit my first 600-pound deadlift. I deadlifted 601 at a competition, at a meet, and, oh, my God, I, that was so hard to do. I felt like I did everything right, and just, you know, I just barely got it. I, I, so, it's a unique program. It's not like linear periodization or daily undulated periodization or um, it's kind of a unique system it's like you do two weeks of, of, of three sets of five and then you do two weeks of three sets of three and then two weeks of three sets of one and but you do straight sets so that's really hard because for me it's brutal to do three sets of five with the same weight you know oh god like I think my deadlift at the at one point in time was like 5.15 for three sets of five. And like, oh God, I'd rather jump off a a building than do three sets of five demos. So that's brutal. And that's the first, so the first eight weeks is, uh, or sorry, the first six weeks is straight sets. Then you, you deload. There is no dealer. Then you go right into the ascending sets, meaning there's just one top set. So say I was doing three sets of five, I could do three sets of five deadlifts with five fifteen. But say I was just doing one top set, maybe I do four fifty-five for five, which is pretty easy. Then I do four eighty-five for five, which is still kind of easy. But then my top set, I can hit five thirty-five for five or something like that, or you know, five forty-five for five my top set of five, and so then the next six weeks are ascending sets, but uh, the, the, it's it's kind of, it can be modified to not be powerlifting, but it's very powerlifting oriented, so you're doing back squats, front squats, deadlifts, block pulls, bench press, military press, and close grip bench press, and then you're also throwing in submaximal work, and I really like the submaximal work being thrown in there because We're so programmed that everything we do has to be hardcore. And sometimes it's like you have your heavy squats, but then you do your sub deadlifts. So you can choose between either doing speed reps or pause reps or just what I call super strict reps. And I like the super strict reps because even though I could deadlift 515 for 5, I can make 405 for 5 be hard. If I use really strict form and a controlled cadence, You can make lightweight feel heavy, but it doesn't beat up your joints, and it reinforces good technique. So the heavy lifts, some maximal work, and at the end you do some assistance work for the supporting musculature, and it's a 14-week plan, and with a peaking, you know, the last week you deload and you peak, and hopefully hit new PRs. And the feedback I got was pretty interesting because. The way the program is set up, you do an equal amount of squatting, deadlifting, and benching, or pressing at least. And most people went up the most on their deadlift, and I think it's the block pulls and the front squatting that, I, cause, cause people will say, "Man, I loved your two by four program. I went up 20 pounds on my squat and you know 15 pounds on my bench, but my deadlift went up 70 pounds." And I heard that from so many people, and I'm like, wow, how? It's not a deadlift specialization plan, but that's what people are reporting. The, the deadlift saw the best results with two by. Four.
0: because it's it's kind of like uh, it falls under that dan john category of it's simple but not easy as in like the setup of it is so simple and so elegant but obviously the program doing it is obviously not easy and i i'm very much a very sort of like even the program i'm doing right now it's literally just my upper body It is just two lifts and i just do two 20 minute blocks for each lift and then my lower body is the same i do 20 minute block of squatting and 20 minute block of a deadlift and then the next uh, lower by day, it's dead it's the primary, and the squats, my secondary. So I, I like really vanilla type setups, but like, again, they're they're easy set or they're simple setups, but they're not easy. So I I just love that that the way you put that program out, and I just felt as well that it was kind of so, kind of uh, under the radar. You know, it's kind of like oh, Brett wrote this book that nobody I really ever talked to. Well,
1: let's state the obvious. I'm not some powerlifting freak. You know, I'm pretty weak compared to all my, all my powerlifting friends are so much stronger than me so yeah yeah i think that's why i'm not known for my maximum strength but my argument there would be who do you think writes the best programs people who cut strength comes easy to, or people who have to work their butts off for it yeah but uh, funny you said that about the i had some people i gave a free two-week well, i just launched strong by brett a couple weeks ago i gave a free two-week trial and most of the people like it, but some of the people I think I had seventeen cancellations and all of them said, you know, I really love Brad, I'm a big fan, but I need a more advanced program.
0: Oh my god.
1: I'm just like, I know what they think. They think So they do need...
0: I, yeah, yeah, I know I know what you're about to say. Go ahead.
1: But yeah, they they need five sets of this with drop sets and every exercise under the book and it's like, man, if that worked, that's what everyone would be recommending, but you have to strip things down and get back to the basics if you want to see results. You can't just do every exercise in the world with every advanced training method and think you're going to see results.
0: It's not what you do, it's how you do it. Like, it's, uh, I, I had students there one day too, Brent, and, and we were going over barbell complexes. You know, It was one of our kind of workshops that, that day that we were in. And I was saying, guys, these are pretty brutal when when you do them, when you go at them hard. If you're, you're, it was like, you know, you can use barbell complexes for many things. You You can use them to warm up, you can use them for a little bit of work capacity, you can use them for some body comp. You know, it really comes down to the intensity in terms of the load and the bar. So, like, I was trying to make the point, you know, that it's really up to you how hard you want to go with these. And I said, when you go hard at them they they can be brutal like and we, we went through like some, you know, complexes and then there was this one student was like, Oh, they that was so easy, like they, they were easy and I was like, Yeah, because we were just doing it with an empty bar teaching technique, like <laughs> and like other people there who had done it they were like kinda looking at her, shaking the head going, You, you just you just don't understand <laughs>
1: What's funny, Robbie? is I can use the bar with those. I think it's just from being tall. Even
0: just the bar wipes me out with those complexes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I get I get a hundred percent what you mean. My my last question. This is probably gonna be sound a bit odd, but it's just from yourself and and Eric Helms. And I've heard you guys both mention John Cronin, and I've heard a few people talk about him. Can you maybe just speak about like you know about John, like uh, how much of an influence he was uh, at AUT, and, and I heard he he overcame cancer. And Eric Helms said he's a you know said he was a huge influence on him, and no doubt he probably is an influence on you too. So. How, how how like how much influence was John on you over this whole process? Oh
1: God, I John's like a second father to me. Um,
0: that's that that's why I asked. That's the, and I never heard you or Eric say that, but I could just tell by your voice when you spoke about him.
1: He's a unique guy. It's funny because you know everyone has his quirks. But what I learned from John is because you know <laughs> this is kind of funny. When I moved to New Zealand. John's like, oh, you can stay with me in my basement, you know, he, he, so him and his, in New Zealand, not, not everyone gets married, like, it's not husband and wife, it's a lot of them are just their partners, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: But I stayed in the basement for, like, five months, like, they they, they wanted me out of there within like a month or two, and I just never looked for a place, and they, they, they would kept hinting like, yeah, you should go find a place, but... It, it, where we were staying, it's a lot of flatting, like you rent rooms out of people's houses and I don't, I just, just I don't know, I, I don't, I live by myself, like I have a three bedroom house here to myself,
2: yeah, here in yeah.
1: Phoenix, I don't like living with people and, and they don't have, a, where I was staying, they don't have a lot of apartments and I wanted a, a condo or apartment by the beach, so it's, <laughs> those are very expensive. But I just wouldn't look, I just got complacent. So I lived with John for like, I think it was like five months. It's funny, they had to make a Brett Brett Contreras rule where new students can only stay for a month or two and they have to get out of there. (laughs) I just stayed and probably wore out my welcome. But I know John kind of liked it because I'm such a workaholic. He'd be like, I remember the second night I was in town, he's like, he's like, Brett, you need to publish more, you you, you need to publish, you, that's, you're going to be criticized because you don't have any studies, so the next day, he's like, you should do an an exercise technique, just a simple one for the hip thrust and publish it in Strength and Conditioning Journal, SCJ, so the next day I had it finished, you know, I'd stay up, I stayed up till like 5 in the morning and did it, wow. and he's like, you did it already, and I'm like, yeah, you told me to, so I, I was just a workhorse there in New Zealand, so uh, John and I, You know, we got a lot of good work accomplished. And I remember from my paper, Are All Hip Extension Exercises Created Equal, where I looked at the torque, uh, the torque angle curves associated with uh, horizontal back extensions, 45 degree back extensions, and good mornings. Mm. And that that was just me. So we would, he has a a house in the Kaimais, which is where they filmed um, Lord of the Rings.
0: Oh, the Hobbit, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's really green and just beautiful. And he has—it's right by a creek. It's so beautiful. So he has a, a house there with a little guest house. It's so peaceful. And um, so we'd go there for like a week at a time. And I would help him. I helped him revamp his curriculum for a course that he did. Eric Eric Helms did the same thing. Wow. And so we get really close because we get to talking a lot. And he—he so he really shaped my thinking not only as a, a, a researcher. But also, just his philosophy of life, you know, um, he's just more calm than I am and more at peace, peace. And everybody would say, I would hate to have your life, you're too accessible. You're too accessible, you know. I like him flying under the radar. But, you know, John and I did the, re- uh, for that hip extension article I wrote, I told him about it. He's like, well, let's do it right now. Let's create a reference individual. And I'm like, how? He's like, I'm shorter, you're tall, let's average you and I out." And so that's right there, we create a hypothetical two hundred pound man, here are his dimensions, and then we calculated the torque based on that and so it was a theoretical thing, like a model paper, so it could be published in S C J. And it's a cool paper, you know, I'm really proud of it. Things like that. John's just a guy who gets stuff done. And he'd always tell me that, you know, Brett, the world isn't in there in your computer, it's out there in the real world. You gotta go meet people, shake their hands, look them in the eye, and that's how I always was, but I, the night when I got online, I you can get wrapped into this online world, and yeah. I remember just being like, that's why now, anywhere I live, I have to be training people locally, you got to be making a local impact, and feeling like you're giving back to the community, because if you're just on the internet, it just feels weird, like not tangible it's not real so yeah yeah uh, that's why i like giving seminars training the squad and it it just you got to be making impact real hand-to-hand face-to-face impact with people and working with them in person
0: uh this this may sound a bit weird too but even just since last time i spoke to you 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 even you come across a lot more zen or calm since last not not that not that you are ever like uh hyper or angry but you you just seem a lot more chilled in yourself like a lot more at ease ease.
1: but I I struggle with that you know I have uh, it wasn't until the economy collapsed I was actually a peaceful person but I left teaching and then in in 2008 ish or (laughs) 7 I think it was the economy collapsed and everyone my whole plaza went under so like my studio lifts was kicking butt yeah, yeah. I had 55 clients my third month and I also invented the Scorcher and I partnered up with investors and I thought I was you know I thought I was going to be a rich I thought I was going to strike it big and when the economy collapsed and my investors pulled out of Scorcher and then lifts my plaza went under and I'm just like oh my god what am I going to do I, I became uh, a little bit bitter and jaded and Resentful and started developing anxiety at that at that point in time because it was like I, I you know I was a school teacher and then I left to, to open up my training studio and mm-hmm. then now I'm back to square one. What do I do? I start a blog. How am I going to make money? Yeah, yeah. And then over the years I've learned you know I've, I've struck a happy medium. But last year, the last time I did this podcast, it was during the you know during this time where I'm finishing up my PhD and I'm. I'm juggling too many things, and I'm putting too much pressure on myself with yeah. social media. You know, you get addicted to the social media.
0: Oh, of course. <laughs> like there, there's research to show like the they were looking at like dopamine release of people every time they went on to just their phone, or and then if it was Facebook and a like. It was it's just like a dopamine fix. Apparently, we get fixed it. Like we get this release of it's a reward center in our brain.
1: So right, and 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 it, it's so
0: addictive. So well, it's also such a turnoff when you're out
2: when you're out with people and they can't put their phone yeah. away you can't
1: oh. even have a face-to-face conversation. And yeah. you know, so I I try to have a, a healthy balance now and not put put so much pressure on myself because the happier you are, the more effective you're going to be in every aspect of your life.
0: Absolutely. You know. Yeah.
1: So and and also, I remember telling my mom. My mom and I had this argument like a year ago. She's like she's like the point of life is to be happy and I'm like no, the point of life is to it's a lot more than that. You got to make a difference. You got to I don't want to be ordinary. I want you know, when I die I want a Wikipedia page like here's what this guy did. I want I don't want to be ordinary. I don't want to just, you know, I want to impact the world and But what's the point of doing that? What's the point of impacting the world if you're miserable? What's the point of making a lot of money if you're miserable? It it doesn't make sense. So yeah, I did research on happiness a couple years back and I learned a lot. It's not related to money. It's not related. It's more about your social support and your connections and helping others. Helping others is important for your own happiness so I try to do good deeds and yeah yeah something I have to constantly work on Robbie and I get the sense from you that it's something that comes easy for you like you seem a peaceful person but I'm not naturally I'm kind of naturally I'm a irritable prick and so I have to really work on it and but it's just like working out or dieting it becomes habitual and it you have to work on it and then it becomes you know and and you can see improvements just like anything else
0: well I I think it's perspective too because if you mentioned there like you kind of mentioned two or three times people think that if I make money it'll make me happy and people kind of see happiness and wealth and when they when they hear the word wealth they they assume that wealth automatically means monetary wealth but wealth has so many different uh, so many different aspects like you have your your wealth with your relationships with your friends your family your community wealth with your health your health is also wealth to you so like success is determined in many ways not just monetarily and then happiness is determined in so many different ways not just monetarily there's so many aspects that go through and it seems like over the last two years as you said when you started studying happiness you started to see there was more avenues to it too but no as I was saying earlier you just see it it definitely I'm definitely sensing you're definitely in a a way better place and I'm delighted to hear that well thank you
1: and and it's funny I just added this Someone, someone online accused me of fabricating my hip thrust EMG results. And, I'm, and it, this, this, I was talking to my friends in Norway about this, all the all the presenters that I've talked about during this podcast, like Brad mm. Allen, uh, is Greg there? Greg's coming this year, I think. Uh, Menno and all these guys. And we're, we're talking, and I'm like, could anyone fabricate research? Like, I would never inject false data into the, ugh, I, could, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I would feel wrong. I would. I. Ugh, just, I couldn't sleep at night. But the other thing is, what, what would you think? Let's say I was making up my EMG data. What do you think? Do it, what, How stupid would I be? Someone's going to duplicate my research. It'll probably get duplicated a few times in the next 10 years. And if they came up with way different numbers, I, I'd look like a complete idiot, you know what I mean? Like,
2: yeah.
1: all the researchers would look at me and go, you liar. They'd never trust me again, and I'd be the laughing stock. and I'd never, I wouldn't be speaking at the same seminars as them. And I was thinking about it. i, I You could be like, Brett, if you just sell out, you know, you can make <laughs> $10 million and buy this mansion. And retire and live the rest of your life, but but these guys, but all the top people in your field will know you're full of crap. They'll know that you won't be taken seriously by them anymore.
2: Mm.
1: It would never be worth it to me, because then what? I have this mansion at the top of some mountain, and I'm I'd be sitting out on the balcony, looking out, going, this, this, it's not worth. What? I it wasn't worth it. I. I I I would rather be living in a normal place, but still have the respect of my peers and be able to collaborate with them, yeah. than be shunned by that. But have this house that is empty. You know, I don't know. It's just it's that. That I remember thinking that, and I'm so lucky to have the colleagues that I do. That's something I I always try to say. You know, I want them to value me as a friend, so I spoil them with research. You know, I'm always sent my colleagues studies and stuff because. <laughs> that that's more that's better than like if I was like hey Robbie here's a twenty dollar bill every time I saw you you'd, you'd probably be like I really like hanging out with this guy. <laughs>
2: Sam,
0: well, uh, well, I I definitely like I I definitely like doing podcasts with you that's for sure.
1: <laughs> most Just, of these guys? Animus.
0: um brett that's pretty much it for for today i don't want to keep you any longer and and uh, i have to prepare stuff for 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 class tomorrow too so i better get going myself but this was absolutely brilliant i mean i could talk to you for another god knows how long it was really good have you uh just you've lots of speaking arrangements or some speaking arrangements coming up but you maybe i uh, want to either give the dates or even give the the links or the website where people can check out your upcoming seminars and then if you have any upcoming projects or products or anything at all that you want to tell the listeners about
1: no, well, if you just go to uh, com, or you can just type in the glute guy" into Google and my, yeah. my blog comes up first thing, but there's a tab, speaking engagements, on the tab, and it shows I'm speaking in uh, UK, uh, i speaking at the Fitness Summit, I'm speaking at two, of the, both of the NSCA conventions, the National and the Personal Trainer,
2: Great. I'm
1: speaking in Australia uh, later this year, and Norway again. Um, but the blog has all the links to my social media and uh, and there's a lot of articles on the site too including if you go to the about me and articles tab and you scroll all the way to the bottom there's like 30 articles I've published and there's you can click on all those and get the full PDFs of all the journal articles that i've published wow, too so that's awesome
0: that's all available on the blog that's great okay and obviously in, in the show notes i'll link to, to brett's website so uh <clears throat> brett just stay on for like a, a one minute after i wrap this up so i'll just say my goodbye to his offline but guys w- what an absolutely brilliant podcast with uh dr Brett Contreras. i know i know i, I remember on Kier's uh, podcast he we was like don't call me doctor just just call me brett so i know brett, brett's very humble so it was an absolutely great podcast again with Brett Contreras, who's brilliant to have him back on, and no doubt we will have him back on in the future, so for everyone listening, I'll talk to you soon guys, take care and stay strong.